What's Shaken Parkinson's podcast, where we explore information to learn about and to offer you a bi-weekly insight into the world of Parkinson's disease. Thanks for joining. This is the What's Shaking Parkinson's podcast, episode three. We're about to interview Hal is going to give us an introduction for Dr. Jeffrey Ratliff, who is his primary neurologist. Hal, you've been seeing Dr. Ratliff for some time now, right? It's been quite a while, more than I'd like to admit, unfortunately. But um, but um, Dr. Ratliff's doing a good job with me, and uh, you know you need a you need a neurologist who's going to be there for you, going to help you, an advocate. Um, yeah, you need an advocate, and um, he's um, pretty much been that for me, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to his interview. I think he's going to do a great job with us. Good. Um, how long have you been seeing him? It's been six years. Wow. Yeah. And um, just from a overview, uh, you know, we'll get in with him into you know, what, what he does in every individual session, uh, but have you found that he's hands-on, that uh, he takes a good look at, at med adjustments as they need to be made, that he evaluates you, have you talked to other patients of his? Good questions. Good questions, Frank. Um, as far as talking to other, no, I know no one else that's going to him, you know, through all my Rock State Boxing and everything, but pretty much tried to stay locally with people. Um, but, um, but, you know, I've been pleased with him. Um, there, there are certain things, you know, you have disagreements on, and that's fine. Sure. Um, but I've been pleased with him. He, he, he's there for me. Um, he, you know, there's been a couple of emergencies where, like, I just wasn't right, and he's called me right back and, and said, you know, try this and try that. So um, he's, he's, a, he's a good man, and good. Uh, he's a good doctor. I'm happy with him, and hopefully we're going to um, have a nice interview. I'm sure we will. All right. We're looking forward to that. Thanks. Listen up. So, Dr. Radliff, thank you for joining us on our uh, Parkinson's What's Shaken podcast. Um, you are our third session, uh, which all will all be um, looped together uh, as one batch feed uh, starting this weekend, hopefully. I need a little bit of tech assistance from my uh, out-of-house uh, millennial who will be here on Sunday. I need assistance from me. You're not millennial, how? Uh, it's not just the age. It's just I just can't do the computer. Um, so we uh, thank you for being here and appreciate your time uh, above all else and uh, look forward to uh, speaking with you right now. Yeah, I'm happy to. Thank you. Yeah, well, Hal, uh, you've been seeing Dr. Ratliff for some time. Why don't you um, start us off? Ask. Uh, sure, sure. Yeah, Dr. Ratliff is uh, very well known in, in the Philadelphia area. And when I, um, I previously went to another doctor in um, Bucks County with no names. And um, he said to me, in a small room, he said, walk up and down to, to the wall and back. And I did that. And he said, you definitely have it. I'll see you in three months and we'll see what we're going to do about it. And I walked out of there saying, scratch my head saying, something doesn't seem right. You know, he's diagnosed me in Parkinson's, number one, with, with just telling me to walk up and down. And then um, 
And they tell me we'll worry about it in three months. So uh, I decided to get a, um, I decided to get him Dr. Ratliff. He gave him very highly recommended. He gave me a very thorough um, diagnosis, very thorough uh, testing and everything. Made me do walking, made me do, uh, he, I thought he was beat me up. I mean, he pushed me, my shoulders, I remember. Um, but he did everything for me and he's doing a great job. And, um, you know, I'm excited for this DBS we're having and things are going to go in a good way. So it's great. It's been, it's been a battle. It's been a real battle. The first two years were great. I'm sure Dr. Ratliff will, you know, will admit to that. And the past two, two and a half years have been very trying for me. Um, but again, I've got a good, good staff, good people with me. And uh, a little background about you, Dr. Ratliff. Um, where did you study? Um, so I went to med school at the University of Rochester, and then after graduating med school, did my neurology residency training at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, mm-hmm. and then spent two years of movement disorders and Parkinson's fellowship at Mount Sinai Beth Israel in New York City before coming to Jefferson. Oh, very nice. So did you say so you started in New York and came back to New York and then went to, Je- to um, Jefferson, to Philadelphia? That's right. I mean, I grew up in the Philadelphia area, so coming oh, okay. back home. But uh, yeah, so going to Rochester was sort of when I first left the Philadelphia area. Very nice. Where'd you grow up? Just out of curiosity. I uh, grew up um, in Glen Mills, out near Westchester. Sure. 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 Yeah. Very familiar with the area. Very familiar. Um, and how many patients would you say you, you see weekly? So, um, my time here, Jefferson, I'm split about 50-50 between seeing patients and doing other educational administrative roles. So I see patients about two and a half days a week. Um, so in terms of numbers of patients, uh, if I did the math in my head, we're probably at about 40 patients a week, 30 to 40 patients a week. Do you enjoy the teaching end of it? Yes, that was, you know, when I was looking for jobs, I wanted to find a place where I was going to be able to move into uh, medical education roles. And so that's, that's where I spent a lot of my time here at Jefferson. Very nice. Very nice. So you've done the training and all that. Also, that's, that's, that's excellent. Um, Where are like the most, um, I got to put it, I mean, I guess where are the well? First, I'll start with um. I was always told Parkinson's is it's like basically 50-50 as far as fifty percent environmental and fifty percent for um um in hereditary. Do you come across? Is that the number? Do you come across? Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it was fifty-fifty, especially with that last part being hereditary. I think what we're coming to learn is that Parkinson's is maybe even different for different individuals. There are some people for whom Parkinson's is a hereditary or genetic diagnosis and has to do with an identifiable gene. That's probably the minority. Uh, That is definitely the minority. For most patients, um, even if they do have some family history, we don't necessarily identify a causative mutated gene that has caused their Parkinson's disease. Um, To get at that first 50% where you talk about, is it environmental? Um, Maybe is the answer. And I say that because we haven't really pinned down a discrete or a definitive environmental cause for Parkinson's. So we can't turn to someone's history and say, 
this exposure in your environment was right. the cause or the trigger of your Parkinson's disease. And so still for the majority of patients that we make a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease in, the cause or the reason that they have Parkinson's is ultimately unknown. We can't identify uh, in most cases why someone has developed Parkinson's, be it exposure or something in their family or their genes. It's interesting you say that because that sort of follows me in certain ways. It's like they asked me, um, did I grow up near any waste dumps and things like that? And I did, and I was like just a regular, you know, suburban kid or whatever. Um, and they, um, then they asked me about my, uh, my family history. I do have a, a very strong history of Parkinson's in my, um, my, my grandfather, my grandmother had it. And on the same side of the family, my uncle has it, her, um, with, you know, which is, uh, that was her mother and, um, he's still living. He's lives in Washington. He's in, he's in sad shape. Um, and, uh. I remember when I was first diagnosed, I had to go down to Washington to work. I always would go visit him when I went down there. I went down there that night, and um, it was very upsetting because, you know, I mean, it was, I just was diagnosed. I'm thinking, is that what I'm going to be like? And uh, But I found out he really did nothing. He did nothing to um, – he didn't believe his diagnosis. He didn't go work. He didn't do anything. Right? jumped on rock steady boxing, and, um, you know, I, I've been working like a – working hard. And I'm going to work a lot harder too. I mean, we're, we're going to we're going to fight this. Um, are there a lot of misdiagnoses? Um, you find? No, not per se. Um, it's it's a. I don't know what the evidence or the data is out there in terms of rate of misdiagnosis. I will say, I have had patients come to me and say, um, you know, they were diagnosed with Parkinson's and and. I may say, I don't think that diagnosis is accurate. I'm sure that may have happened to me sometimes. I mean, there's there's error built into all of the diagnoses we make. I'm sure there might be patients who I thought, you know, yeah. had Parkinson's and maybe it wasn't entirely clear. And I sort of, um, I, you know, ultimately that might've gone on to become something else. The other thing is um, Parkinsonism is the collection of sort of the findings that neurologists look for on examination. We look for slowness. We look for stiffness. We look for certain patterns of tremor that defines Parkinsonism, but there are other diseases that can make people Parkinsonian. And that could be certain medications that could be other brain diseases that cause Parkinsonism. So there can be some diagnostic uncertainty when we see someone who is Parkinsonian about whether we're looking at someone who has Parkinson's disease or whether we're looking at someone who is Parkinsonian for a different reason. Yeah. When you were, you were giving me your answer, I was thinking the same exact thing. I was thinking like, um, you know, I mean, it's so broad of a line, you know, there's so many things that's, I mean, I just found out recently my toes curl. And that, that, that's a um, sign. Um, Say that one more time. My toes curl. Oh, uh-huh. I just found out recently that that's a sign of Parkinson's. I never knew or, that. Or at least a precursor. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, and that was, that's been like 25 years. They've been, they've been like um, curl and everything. I mean, Frank could tell you that. He's going camping trips and everything. I always complain my toes were curling. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's just... Um, 
It's just it's just a tough ride though. Um, do you think um how do you think they're doing as far as uh, getting better at diagnosis as far as like so there's more money behind it now with like Michael J. Fox and all that. So I'm just curious if, if there's more things coming out now that you're aware, you're aware of from a diagnosis standpoint. Yeah, I th- I think um. I think with the clinical criteria that we have, we're still by and large pretty good at making a diagnosis of Parkinson's. Now, sometimes that comes with a little bit of time. If someone has very, very early disease or they have some signs or features that are a little bit unusual, that might make us uh, have a little bit of ambiguity. But I think we're pretty good at making a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease in a relatively short order of time. Um, In terms of, you know, is there going to be development of other tests, brain scans or blood tests or spinal fluid tests to lead to a diagnosis of Parkinson's? Um, People are working on that. And I'm sure that there are probably going to be some cases where um, some of those tests are going to be more helpful uh, in in cases where uh, the diagnosis is a little uncertain. But um, yeah, there's always going to be more tests and and area to develop that. But I think as it stands now, and I'm biased, I have skin in the game, but I think we're pretty good at making the diagnosis where we are now. I don't think there's too much of a, too high of an error rate as with other neurologic diseases. Doctor, once yeah. once you've made that diagnosis, um, obviously, as Hal alluded to with his uncle, uh, the more aggressive and the more immediate uh, we get into treatment, uh, the more advantageous it will be. Do you find variance by patient um, for how your approach will be? Uh, do medicines vary? Do physical recommendations vary? And as well as testing and yeah, how do you come about determining what is the most optimal way to treat? Yeah, and so that's one thing that I think you'll hear from other movement disorder Parkinson's specialists beyond myself is that everybody's Parkinson's is different. Um, and to go back to Hal's example of sort of even meeting, you know, family members who were more significantly. Uh, impacted by Parkinson's disease, I counsel patients often early on after making the diagnosis that as they meet other people with Parkinson's at various stages of the disease, there's not an inevitability that their Parkinson's will progress to that other individual's current state. Um, Different people have different symptoms and different journeys with their Parkinson's. It's not everyone on the same path. And so, From a treatment standpoint, moving back into my role as someone who uh, sees patients and takes care of patients with Parkinson's, um, very much do we tailor our therapy and our treatments to that individual. We figure out, okay, your Parkinson's, uh, we're noticing this symptom or this symptom or this symptom, and we might choose different therapies accordingly, where for the next patient who comes in, we may, you know, choose a whole different constellation of, of drugs or treatments um, because their symptoms are different than the, than the last Parkinson's patient who came That's in. Very interesting. I wasn't aware of that, but it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Sure. Where do you normally see patients? Um, how are they sent to you? Um, 
through referrals, through uh, a, a general practitioner who they're working with, um, hospital. So, um, yeah, so my practice is, is entirely here in Center City, Philadelphia. Um, and the patients that come to me usually come through one of two channels. Um, the most common is they're coming from a general neurologist who has raised a suspicion or made a diagnosis of Parkinson's or perhaps has been treating that patient's Parkinson's for some period of time and feels that they want some assistance with Parkinson's that they don't feel that they're um, treating as optimally as, as they would like to. So definitely referrals from non-movement disorder neurologists will send patients to me for further diagnosis and management. I'll have other patients who come to me from non-neurologists and most commonly that's going to be their primary care physician, but I will still have patients who come to me from, you know, they may come to me from a neurosurgeon who is seeing the patient for, you know, a, a gait disturbance or a walking problem. And they say, I don't think this is a neurosurgical issue. I think this is a Parkinson's issue. And, and so other non-neurologists who recognize that this might be a movement disorder and will send patients to our clinic. Um, those are probably the vast majority. There are still instances where I will see a second opinion from another movement disorder neurologist, you know, a patient um, might be have seen some movement disorder specialists and then wants to come get a second opinion. I would say that's the minority. I would say most of the patients I see are coming from a neurologist, a non-movement disorder specializing neurologist or from a non-neurologist. My brother was diagnosed with some essential tremors. Now, how's that um, compare? Uh, say that question one more time, sorry. My brother was, um, was diagnosed with essential tremors. I was curious how that compares to uh, to Parkinson's. So, essential tremor is a is a separate movement disorder where a Parkinson's disease tremor tends to occur more when someone's hand is at rest, sitting on their lap, sitting on the arm of a chair, sitting on a desk or a table while they're not using that arm. Um, that's when a Parkinson's tremor tends to come out. Something we call a resting tremor when the hand or the arm is at rest. Patients who have essential tremor, their tremor comes out when they're using the hand or the arm. Um, so they go to reach for something. They're trying to hold something like a fork or a spoon or a cup or a pen. And as they're trying to use that hand or use that arm, that's when the tremor comes out. Um, now, there can be overlap between those two things. It's not totally, they're not mutually exclusive. Parkinson's patients can have a tremor that is present when they're trying to eat or trying to drink or trying to use their hand. And on the flip side, someone with a central tremor can have a tremor that comes out when their hand is at rest. But the primary tremor with the central tremor is present when someone is lifting, using, reaching with the hand that's affected. That's very interesting because I found like um, your, your line of questioning for me when I tell you something has sort of changed over the past few years, certain ways. And um, you're, you're just trying, I think, um, you're just trying to get all the best information, make the best diagnosis. But you did ask me recently, um, you wanted to know the difference. Like, was, it a, was I moving when it was happening or not? Yeah, so a lot of times 
we are going to adjust. We talked about tailoring therapies to the individual. And so we're going to try to figure out is the symptom that someone is having, is that a symptom that they're having because of not enough medication in their body? Is it a symptom they might be happy? I'll start over. Is it a symptom they might be having from having higher levels of medication in their body? And so that's going to dictate how do I recommend adjusting the schedule of their medicines or what dose to take, or are there other medicines we can try to add on to uh, identify what that symptom is and over the phone or over a patient portal and email and things like that, those sorts of questions can help us sort of figure out what sort of symptom of Parkinson's are we precisely dealing with. And have you seen significant changes in, uh, in, it's called technology and, and medical research that have enabled you to uh, be more accurate with diagnosis, more uh, effective with treatments and open more options of treatments. I will say from a diagnosis standpoint in my career, I don't know if there's been sort of technological advancements that immediately come to mind, but you know, the, the elephant in the room of technological advancements that is present as a function of the COVID pandemic has been the advent of, you know, increased use of video teleconferencing and telemedicine. Sure. Now that was not, that technology was present pre pandemic, but it, obviously was scaled up rapidly where so much more medicine is now happening over video teleconference. And you could have a debate amongst Parkinson's disease specialists as to whether they feel that they're able to sort of deliver the same quality of care over a video conference than they are there in the office. But I don't think anyone would argue that um, the um ease for the patients of getting access to see their physicians and not having to get in the car and drive into the city and find parking yeah, and sure. for patients who many of whom have difficulty with mobility and difficulty getting around getting from their front door to the doctor's office is um, can be an onerous effort and so telemedicine has definitely sort of cut out a lot of that um, so it's definitely been a benefit to patients in uh, in a lot of different situations. Yeah, I spoke to one of my um, my doctors over at tele, 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 telemedicine and of telemed, and they said the same. That's where the business is, you know. I mean, and people notice that if they're you know under stress or you know if they're in a hurry or they feel that there's pressure that you know that absolutely has an impact on yeah. their Parkinson's symptoms. In uh, um, how the um, as far as patients being uh, having more capability to meet with you, um, that also has to have a positive impact on you as well. Um, you're having the opportunity to uh, have those interactions where you know, there, there could be um, challenges otherwise. And, and can you talk a little about some of those, I, I guess, you know, frustrations on your end where you're dealing with a, a patient that doesn't always have the mobility to be able to make it to you and, and there's scheduling challenges and the flexibility that may be necessary to help implement and, and alleviate those challenges. Yeah. I mean, telemedicine has sort of made it uh, easier in some situations where, you know, maybe two years ago, a patient would have, you know, had a new symptom that cropped up. They, you know, called the office. We were talking on the phone 
And maybe I was having a hard time figuring out exactly what the symptom was, or they were having a hard time describing whatever the abnormal movement or issue they were dealing with is. And now, you know, it's fairly easy to say, okay, let's set up a telemedicine visit. We'll squeeze one in, you know, next week or later this week. And I can sort of, you know, at least get a chance to see what they're describing. And I can probably make a better assessment of what's going on sometimes than I would previously been able to just, you know, having a conversation on the telephone. Sure. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, Good sense. Um, I um, had a um, interview with um, the gentleman at, at ten. He said he saw me when I was real bad. I, I, I said I was real good. I went there first. I was real good. It's a good day. I was fine. And then the second week I went to see him, I was real bad. And he he, he thanked me for letting him see me both ways. Um, but it was just it was just interesting how. Um, He's got just got their own sort of method of doing things, or whatever. Also, which is which is normal with anything. I mean, two chefs that make something different. So two, you know, two di- two people who make different different diagnosis. Right, right, exactly. Um, as you know, you know, I, I chose um, Jefferson over um, over a you know, the gentleman in um, at ten. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad I did. I think, I think we're going to do a great job. But um, he, you know, as, as a patient, just figuring it out, he said to me, we, I do find this interesting, we change the battery every 15 years because we don't want to open up your body and make it susceptible to things. And, and um, you know, it, it's minor surgery with someone do things like that. And, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And then on um, the following week, I went to Jefferson. And they said we we um, do it every five years. And I said, "Well, why is that?" Because you know, there's so much technology going on. You know, within five years, they may find something different. And when they're opening your body, they're gonna find something, and maybe something's for you. So it's just it's just interesting. The um, I found it very interesting how the doctors have their own philosophy. One tells me 15 years, and that makes sense because you don't want to get the body, um, you know, exposed too much. And the other one tells me five years, and um, that makes sense. And Hal, from what you had told me, um, Jefferson's system, uh, their equipment and their technology is also newer. So maybe that plays into it in that Penn's working with an older system. They're used to things not changing within that, uh, whereas Jefferson maybe has seen more technological changes more rapidly and even think that in five years, a new bat- type of battery could be out that will give extended life. And it may not be five years after that point. Well, the, and, the, and the batteries that last, you know, um, sort of a decade plus um, tend to be ones that patients recharge um, periodically right. where the ones that have to be uh, taken out and replaced, um, you know, more on the sort of five to 10 year timeline are those that are not recharged periodically. So some of it has to do with sort of how that, how that DBS, that deep brain stimulation system fits into someone's life. And so, um, to get to Hal's point, yes. Are you going to find differing opinions in different ways that physicians talk about, um, 
deep brain stimulation surgery or even medications, none of us sort of treat all of our patients exactly the same. And so the house perspective, house perspective is, is valuable there that sort of he sees different approach, but, you know, at the end of the day, and I'll say, you know, the team at the university of Pennsylvania is D is working with, um, has available to them the exact same deep brain stimulation technology that we do. And um, they have a surgeon who has um, tremendous experience. Their neurologists have tremendous yeah. deep brain stimulation experience, just as our neurosurgeons have fantastic experience and, and, and our neurologists do too. So you're, you won't find uniformity between institutions or even within the same institution. You know, you may find that I approach someone's Parkinson's differently than one of my colleagues does here at Jefferson or, or vice versa. Um, and, and we all, you know, it gets back to exactly what we were saying before is we're all sort of tailoring therapy um, as we've learned how to in our careers uh, to try and address each individual's symptoms and, and tailor that to how they're, how they function in their, in their life and, and how their symptoms have an impact on that. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a very interesting topic. Um, and, and, you know, we're hoping, you know, as technology goes on, of course, more things come out. Um, you know, maybe this podcast will do some good for some people. We hope so. Yes, yeah, certainly uh, hope so. Yeah. Um, but it's just, uh, it's a very frustrating disease, though. It's like Absolutely. I, I've had things before that were painful. You know, I, I've had, um, I've had a lot of surgeries in my past. And, um someone says, is it painful? I was like, no, there's no pain, really. I don't, I don't get pain from it. But I get so much other stuff that just, like, really frustrates you and, and you know, and gives you mental highs and lows. And um, it just, it's just different than anything I've ever experienced. I mean, I've had broken bones. I've had um, ruptured appendix. I've had tonsillitis. I've had, you know, a bunch of things. But um, this knocks me out. It's really it's tough disease. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's short-sighted to think of Parkinson's as only a disorder that affects someone's ability to move. Um, and, and you're hitting the nail on the head and that it affects thinking and mood and, and other symptoms beyond just stiffness and slowness and tremor. And it, yeah. and it is a whole body disease. And, um, that's where, um, you know, that's where, having experience taking care of patients with Parkinson's is, is helpful. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely would like to have you back sometime, but um, we got, we're trying to take this doctor from like the beginning when you're first diagnosed all the way to the end. And um, we're going to try and, you know, fill in deep, fill in holes, things like that. But um, we've spoken to some of your colleagues and they gave us some different information, which I found very interesting. And um, we're, we're excited about this. Um, we're going to do some good things. No, it's exciting that you guys are doing the work that you're doing and, and you know, getting this information uh, in, you know, in, in this one podcast. And yeah. We appreciate yeah, The Rock Study Boxing was something I really enjoyed. Um, I used to actually box as a kid. I was in the Golden Gloves. And uh, now I'm boxing, you know, I, I was boxing for fun. Now I'm boxing to save myself. And, uh, but I also took it, I was knocked out a couple of times. So, I mean, you know, I could have, I, I think I, I probably have some precautions 
Um, so it, it's been um, it's been a battle for me, though. It really has been a battle. And, uh, you know, I, I'm going to keep on fighting. Uh, we're going to get through this. Good. And, and being able to share this story and go through the journey and, and your experience with uh, going into the DBS and and being a, you know, I, I hate to use the term, but a guinea pig for people to observe the before and after, uh, the during, and, and, you know, how your willingness to just be open and to share that with people um, will, will have an, a huge impact on, on many. Yeah. And I hope, you know, I, I hope your listeners or anyone who sort of listens to this with Parkinson's, who's thinking about deep brain stimulation surgery, you know, realizes both from this conversation and others that you've had that, you know, it's a therapy that's been available for, you know, on the order of decades. And, and I think one of the misnomers that we as, as Parkinson's neurologists sort of find ourselves bucking against a little bit is that people feel like it's sort of a brand new therapy. Um, That's not to say there's not been innovation and change. And you alluded before that, you know, changes to come. This these past couple of years have been tremendous in terms of new technologies affecting the world of deep brain stimulation, with new platforms on the market, new technologies that those platforms are bringing to the table, and hopefully that innovation continues. Um, but at its at its root, it's it's uh, it's something that we have really good evidence over. You know, over a decade, you know, a decades plus of you know, benefit that it's able to provide to patients as long as we're, as long as we're selecting patients for surgery appropriately, uh, it can do a lot of good. Where do you Wonderful. think Parkinson's in about 10 years, I think, as far as um, diagnosis and um, population-wise and everything else? Um, I think, you know, uh, with the caveat that I'm speculating and predicting the future a little bit, I think you're going to see um, innovation in ways of delivering dopamine therapy more continuously over time to try and smooth out fluctuations. Yes. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we're starting to see, uh, I mean, we already are, but seeing more trials targeted at different subtypes of Parkinson's, you know, genetics trials that are trying to sort of cure and, or at least slow down, um, certain subtypes of Parkinson's disease using gene therapies. I think we're going to see both the outcomes of trials that are ongoing now and probably additional trials in that regard. Um, And then I already alluded to, we're probably going to see advances in deep brain stimulation therapy that um, might be able to um, make programming more fluid and, and more straightforward. So those are just some examples, but I think we're going to see a lot of different ways of, of making the diagnosis, delivering dopamine therapies and, and doing deep brain stimulation in a more efficient and, and more therapeutic manner. It, it, but um, are you coming, are you, is there anything like going, like coming around the mountain, they say, like, uh, like without dopamine and all that? Say that yet you, I lost you a little bit at the beginning I of know, your question. Is there anything coming out that doesn't use like dopamine? I mean, it seems like it's a problem. Well, I, I, I don't know if in ten years. Certainly, perhaps if you know, down the road, is there a therapy that can target the 
the degeneration of dopamine cells in the brain and stop that loss of dopamine. But at the end of the day, um, you know, the main driver of uh, so many of the symptoms that we associate with Parkinson's is the loss of those dopamine cells. And so I think I have a hard time envisioning the day in which we don't have some sort of dopamine based therapy to treat those Parkinson's symptoms. I read something recently where um, some doctors are saying it's not a loss of dopamine. Um, have you, have you, are you familiar with that, that line? Uh, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm not familiar with it, but I'd be happy to look at it. Yeah. I'll probably, I'll probably find that for you, but, um, they say it's not a lot loss of dopamine. But it's certainly something we can uh, follow up with our research and, and share with the, our audience and uh, they'll be able to get that information if it is available. Absolutely. Yeah. But Dr. Owen, thank you very much. It's, it's a pleasure to talk to you as always. Thanks for coming out and supporting us. Looking forward to better days ahead. And, and thank you, Dr. You painted a uh, picture of, of, Better things to come, as Hal said, and uh, we appreciate your time. We'll, uh, with your permission, share your contact information or at least your information uh, through our Facebook page with our audience as well. Happy so, to. Yeah, thank you guys wonderful. for having me. Thank you. Welcome, appreciate it. Have a good night. Take care. All right. Bye now. Yeah, bye. And that was Dr. Jeffrey Ratliff from Jefferson um, Medical. Uh, Hal, you've been seeing Dr. Ratliff for quite a few years now. Yeah, yes, I have. And um, he's a good man. He, um, But, you know, he mentioned something which I didn't talk to you about. He mentioned that he's um, sort of changing around a little bit. Like he, he's looking into more, how can I put it, um, not care. He's always been about care of people. But he's just, um, he's asking different questions. He's trying to get different things out of people now. Uh-huh. Um, I did mention that during the interview. Interesting. Um, yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. I, you know, it, it, and it's good. It, you know, you want to get more, um, the best information you can, and some people aren't willing to give it or, or just don't know how to give it. True. So you got to know how to open up to someone and, and ask them. And he's, he's, he's asking good questions. Yeah, he seems to have a, um, and, and strive to maintain a very personal connection with his with his patients um knowing what goes on in their life where we talked about uh zoom and and things like that where he knows that certain people are just not going to be able to keep appointments at various times and he does rely on that technology to be able to maintain his communication with them and and taking care of him and yes yes he has um and that's a whole new phenomenon a whole zoom thing obviously we're on it right now yeah, we're on it right now, and, and it's doing great for people. And, and it's, it's it's um, you know, it's great the new technology. Um, it really helps the doctors stay in touch. Yeah, and that that's very necessary because um, you know, when you need a doctor, you need your doctor, and um, sometimes um, they're not to be found. Sure, sure. Uh, he spoke about which Dr. Cook had also touched on the uh, variety of movement disorders and how many symptoms can be intertwined between different issues um, and the challenge of you know, pinpointing specifically what it is and then treating it, but, but also seem to have the confidence that he knows when it is Parkinson's, for example, and you know, how to go forward with that as opposed to it being, you talked about your brother uh, with essential tremors and, and the 
um, similarities between those, but again, the differences between those. Yeah, I, I found that very interesting. I mean, he um, he seemed to knock that down. It was like he, he's he's very big on the diagnosis, which is everything, and he made a point to say, like, you know, I can figure out, you know, what um what, if it's essential tremors, Parkinson's, MS, whatever. Um, he, he did. He's very good at that. Absolutely. Uh, and he's got a career focused specifically on movement disorders from the time he went into possibly college. I, I didn't, you know, yeah, really that, get yeah. that. But, but certainly from med school, he um, he knew what he wanted to do. He remained focused on a career in this and, and how to help people. Um, where we look at the variety of, of Dr. Cook's professional exposure and how it evolved from volunteer work with the church to... Yeah. You know, to moving into an undergrad program that was totally unrelated, uh, and then you know, through advice of a career counselor, saying you should be in this. Well, it's fascinating um, how we get to where we get going to, and hopefully, um, we do get to where we, where we want to go. Yeah. But I mean, you know, how they got there, you know, what 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 make what makes them up? It's almost like a sandwich: mm-hmm. a little bologna, a little salami, a little little uh, this, a little that. And um, it's it's um, it's very interesting, and I, I'm enjoying that yeah, very absolutely. much. Absolutely, yeah. And he, um, it's from the area. He went away, and uh, what drew him back was the opportunity to teach in addition to practice. Yes, yes, yes. I'll tell you, I, I think I've got a good, good team. Um, you know, we had Dr. Cook, Dr. Ratliff. I got other doctors. Mm-hmm. Too many damn doctors. <laughs> Dr. Sharan, who's going to be performing your um, your CBS surgery. And uh, we'll be speaking with him in the upcoming weeks as well. Yes, Looking we will. To that. He, he's a great guy. He's a great guy. Just don't ask him which, gun, which hand shoots the gun. <laughs> it's an inside joke. Um, which is his trigger finger. But, um, yeah, he's a good guy. Um, I'm looking forward to um, him doing my um, my DBS. Yeah. So, uh, good things ahead. Yes, and a full team of full care and full training, um, which, you know, we've talked heavily about training with with Rocksteady Boxing, with um, working with Kate, uh, uh, with um, working with a dietitian, uh, who we'll be speaking with real soon. Yes. Um, Working with um, all the people, the... the, um, uh, uh, the uh, social worker uh, Diane that we spoke with yes. recently, and all the people that uh, you need in your life to help you manage and maintain your health to the best of your own capabilities. It's very difficult. Um, all of a sudden, you got this disease. You don't know where to, where you got it. You don't know anything about it, and but you got to learn. You got to be your own advocate. Yeah, you know, you got to fight it. And it's very difficult to fight, and you got to get through it mentally, physically, and I mean, you need the right team behind you. I, I like my team. We're going to tweak it here and there when we need to, but um, they're good people. They, they care, and um, I'm keep on fighting. Awesome. And of course, your family is part of your team, and uh, I just had the pleasure of speaking with your son, Brian. Um, who will also air, get that interview aired. Hal's got this huge smile on his face right now. Um, proud father. Uh, and yeah. We'll have that interview aired. I'm thinking we'll combine it with, um, with Brenda, your wife. Um, and since they won't be super long ones, we can have a, one focused on the family, uh, the family members. And uh, you've got that as part of your team, and it is great support for you. 
I got a great support group. I'm a very lucky man. Absolutely. All right. All right. Thanks, everyone. And uh, thanks for listening and, and checking in to What's Shaking. And we'll be talking to you soon. This has been the What's Shaking Parkinson's Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so please check us out on Facebook at What's Shaking Parkinson's Podcast. You can also email us at What's Shaking Podcast at protonmail.com.